0: You remember the Marx brothers? Yeah, the Marx brothers, the famous comedians. The most famous was Groucho with his cigar and his big eyebrows and his grease paint mustache. And he in the late 1940s, Groucho used to host a TV show. It was called You Bet Your Life. He'd introduce contestants on the show and he'd engage in humorous conversations with them. And I, I used to watch the reruns as a kid. It was, really a strange, it was really a stage for Groucho's often hilarious ad-libs. Now, the whole point of this conversation game was the secret word, a common word revealed to the audience, but not to the contestants. At the outset of each episode, Groucho began each show with the phrase, say the secret word and divide $100. The suspense revolved around whether a contestant, in the course of the conversation, would actually say the word. If one of the contestants said the word, a toy duck resembling Groucho would descend from the ceiling with a prize. So how many of our conversations go like that? Where we're not really focused on the content of the discussion, we're just listening for the buzzwords, right? You know, the secret trigger words that we hear people say that we've already decided will offend us or possibly delight us. Here's the punchline. When we simply focus on the buzzwords, we can miss the significance of what's really being said. Is God like that? Is he merely listening for the wrong buzzwords so he can be angry and zap us? Or is he waiting for us to say the right buzzwords at the end of our prayer so he can be pleased to hear us? When thinking about taking the Lord's name in vain, I sometimes wonder if we think of it along these lines. In other words, we need to avoid the curse words and instead follow some Christian word formula in what we say. Even when we know better, we can fall into some pretty meaningless and rote patterns, can't we? We continue this morning with our study of the Ten Commandments. We've looked at loving God exclusively and rightly, and now we're going to look at loving God reverently. And this third commandment, God is he's interested in more than mere words. Words are important, but what he's really driving at with this command is how he is represented. And At the core, it's truly a matter of the heart. God cares how our words line up with what's inside of us. As Psalm 50 says, perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? So turn with me to Exodus 27, chapter 20, verse 7, page 61 in the Bible under the seat in front of you. Please grab your outline in the bulletin titled Untarnished Name. We have a couple of initial points to cover this morning. The first one's going to be misrepresenting God, and two, the second is obeying God's command, obeying this command. And then, before we'll go to the final point, and that's representing God faithfully, three. So, Exodus 20, uh, verse 7. You shall not take the name... Of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And the Christian Standard Bible also gives us this translation. Listen, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. So consider the first point, misrepresenting God. Think about all the situations where God's name is mentioned by the people you encounter during the course of your day. Sometimes it's an exclamation, like OMG. Sometimes it's an expletive, calling on God to condemn someone. Sometimes it's disgustively creative, intermixed with four-letter words. And sometimes it's just trivial comments that fall far short of hallowing or honoring God's name. But let's look beyond the words. Anyone who takes God's name sincerely or in vain is representing God in some way. They're saying something about God, who he is, and what he means to them. And God holds them accountable. So we shouldn't take this lightly. So in point A, we're going to see that Israel as the people of God bore his name. They represented him. In fact, in Exodus 19.6, God called them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were a people set apart to show the world what it looked like to be blessed by God. I want to read you a passage to make this point. It's a familiar benediction that you hear all the time if you regularly attend Christ Proclamation Church. Numbers 6.22, I'll read it. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. When the benediction read, the reader usually stops before that last line. But let that final line sink in. It gives the purpose behind the benediction. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. God has put his stamp on them for everyone to see. They bear his name. God's name commands respect. So when someone who bears God's name disrespects him, disrespects him, he deals with it. Point B, disrespecting God's name. It's clearly stated in the first part of Exodus 27, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, there's many cultures in the world that have a different view, a more important view of honor and shame than we do in our own country. In these cultures, the family name means a lot. So words and actions that bring honor to a family name, huge motivator. And a greater motivator is avoiding anything that brings shame to the family. Shame sticks to the family name. It it soils it, it. It stains it. It contaminates it. So disrespect or dishonor, especially to the head of the family, It's a crushing blow to family relationships. What does it mean to disrespect God's name? Well, the biblical word translated vain in the ESV, it means empty, empty. So if you do something with God's name or in God's name, but empty it, of its true meaning, then you've misrepresented God. So let's pause here. I'd like to think more about this word vanity or vain. It's an older word, right? In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan used it to describe a town which represented man's attachment to worldly things. These are things that the world sees as significant and meaningful, but in reality, they're empty. Bunyan called it vanity fair. This became the title of William Makepeace Thackeray's satire on the arrogance of British society in the 1800s. Here's perhaps his best line from the book. Everybody is striving for what is not worth having. And here's a subtitle, A Novel Without a Hero. A Novel Without a Hero, why? Because there are 67 chapters which describe a flurry of activities and events in the lives of many characters. At the end of the book, we're simply left with the emptiness of it all. No heroes, nothing significant, said or done. Just empty, meaningless lives in spite of their grand appearance. God cares about how his name is used. If we use his name, it should mean something, not simply in appearance, but in reality. He doesn't want his name used in empty and meaningless ways. If we do that, we're disrespecting him. We soiled, stained, and contaminated his name. That brings us to point C in the last part of Exodus 27. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. With this commandment, God articulates a consequence. Consequence that goes with the command. That's not the case with most of the other commands. And make no mistake, if someone is not guiltless, what are they? Guilty. God stresses how misusing his name brings guilt. Now that doesn't infer that breaking the other commandments doesn't bring guilt. But why does he add that to this commandment? Well, it emphasizes how important God's name is to him. If it's misused, God holds himself or holds them accountable to himself personally. That means punishment. So this is nothing new. Shouldn't be surprised to us. This is very much in God's character. Think back to Exodus 3. God told Moses to, to say the people, I am, has sent me to you. He also said, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. See how careful God is about the representation of his name? Exodus 34.14 says, For you shall worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Ezekiel 39.25 says, I will be jealous for my holy name. So when we receive a commandment from God, it's important to understand what it means. But then we need to obey it. Otherwise, the commandment's emptied of its meaning. And with this particular command... God has spelled out the consequence of disobedience. So we've come now to the second point, and it involves obedience. Obedience is important. It communicates a number of things. How seriously we take God's word, how much we love God, how committed we are to following him. It also communicates something about power, the power to do what God has commanded us to do. Let's look how Israel failed to obey this command. And I should point out that they experienced what everyone experiences without the transforming power of God's Holy Spirit working in them. They experience sin and failure. Their obedience falls short of what God requires. That's because we're all lawbreakers when it comes to all of the commandments, including this third one. Apart from God, we all fail. But to grasp this better, we're going to look at the specific ways that Israel failed to keep this command. The first example involves profane words. Profane words. Turn to Leviticus 24. This is page 102 in your chair Bibles. One book ahead. Leviticus 24. Verse 10. This incident happened early on, after Moses gave these commandments to the people. It's pretty easy to follow. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalemith, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "'Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, "'Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin.'" Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Does that seem severe to you? Is that a big deal? I mean, you're involved in a fight and you blurt out a curse word using God's name, and what's the penalty? Death And not only for Israel, but anyone traveling with the people of Israel. You see, God is jealous for His name. And the consequences are indeed severe. You only fail once, and the wages of sin is death. Romans 6:23. But there's more than, to this point than just blurting out a curse word. It's a heart issue. Words reveal what's in the heart. So if we honor or if we harbor disrespect for God's name in our heart, it shows up in how we use our words. What did this look like in Israel? Well, they stopped caring about whether God could see deception in their hearts. They they just stopped caring. Words became a way to manipulate others to get what you wanted. They'd Dishonesty in their heart led to dishonest speech. Listen to how God elaborated in this command. I'm going to read from Leviticus 19.12. You listen. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. But Israel broke this command by using oaths, taking God's name as a tool of deception Like when someone says, I swear to God to trick others into believing a lie. In fact, Jesus zeroed in on this problem in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, page 810. Verse 33. Again, you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord all that you have sworn. But I, Jesus speaking, say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven. For it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Then, later, Jesus called people out on this very issue. Turn to Matthew 23. He called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, citing the evidence against them. Matthew 23, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, Jesus speaking, who say, if anyone swears by the temple it is nothing but if anyone swears by the golden of the temple he's bound by his oath you blind fools for which is greater the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred and you say if anyone swears by the altar it is nothing but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar he's bound by his oath you blind men for which is greater the gift Or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it, and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. Do you see how deceptive that is? It's like making a promise with your fingers crossed behind your back and then saying you don't need to keep the promise because you had your fingers crossed. They're using dishonest speech to disguise what's in their hearts. Jesus said that's hypocritical, pretending to be one way and deceptively acting another. And Jesus doesn't just slap their wrists, does he? He says, woe to them. It's a serious charge, strong language. Now follow the next example closely because it involves sanctification. I'll read it to you from Leviticus twenty-two thirty-one. God's speaking here, listen. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord and you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So what is God saying? He's saying that if his name is profane, then the people of Israel will not seem as holy and will have no regard for his mighty works. Plus, and this is critical, it implies that they reject his power. That is, his power at work among them. He's the Lord who sanctifies. But if they aren't showing themselves to be sanctified, then they're communicating something false about God, who God is and what he does with all the other nations watching. What is this false communication? That God has no power to make his people holy, to give them a new heart and transform them. But that's not true. God does make his people holy. That's exactly what he does. He saves them, and then he sanctifies them. So now turn to Matthew 12, back to Matthew 12. Now, when you think of God, what person... And, and And you think of of Trinity, or the Trinity, you think of sanctification, you think of God. What person, of the holy of the Holy Trinity, does Scripture point to when it comes to sanctification? It's the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit's the power of God to transform hearts. So what happens when the leaders of Israel encounter the Holy Spirit and His work in and through Jesus? What happens? They try to empty it of its meaning. In fact, they so grossly mi- misrepresent God's power to the people of Israel that they call it the work of Satan. Listen to how Jesus, in Matthew 12, describes the failure of Israel's leaders and its consequences. This is verse 31, Matthew twelve thirty-one. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. This is Israel's biggest fail of all. But does God's plan fail? No. Now sit back and consider the compassion of this God who condemns, because this same God justifies. So when God's people fail, God must act to save them. But when God saves, he remains consistent with his holy name. As Romans 3.26 says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God gave them and us the true Israelite who obeyed God perfectly. That's point B. Where Israel failed, Jesus fulfilled what exactly did he fulfill? Well, the entire law, including this third command. For a description of what he did, let's start with Hebrews. Hebrews 1, page 1001. We're going to go th- through the book of Hebrews pretty quickly. Hebrews 1. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, Jesus' representation of God wasn't just close. He wasn't almost the real thing. Here's the first thing to settle your mind on. Jesus was the exact imprint of God's nature. And he wasn't quiet about it either. He was sent by God to tell his brothers and his sisters about God's true nature. And because of who he was, he did that precisely as God wanted him to. Precisely. Now to chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11, more about sanctification. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus, Jesus knew how to use his words to please God. His words in life teach followers of his to praise God. And second, he obeyed God. That doesn't mean he just avoided doing all the right things. It also means he did the right things. He didn't avoid the wrong things. He did just, not only that, he did the right things. Turn to chapter 5. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This describes Jesus' active obedience to God. Because of this obedience, he had no sin. No sin. Therefore, he was qualified to be a sacrifice for sin. This was his mission. It was foretold in Scripture to offer himself as a sacrifice for his people. Now to chapter 10, verse 5. in the scroll of the book. So Jesus is a sacrifice. He came to do God's will and provide a way of salvation. But do you see your need for a sacrifice? Can you see your guilt before God? How deeply do these words penetrate? God commanded, Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. The only solution for our guilt is Jesus. None of us have obeyed this commandment perfectly. We're all condemned men, women, boys, girls. None of us can escape this. Every single one of us. We're all guilty. We deserve what that guy got in Leviticus 24. Remember him? Right? He uttered a profane word, misusing God's name. They stoned him to death. That should be us too. But Jesus represented God perfectly. Not only that, he obeyed the commandment perfectly. Not only that, he bore our guilt perfectly. So the question is, did he do that for you? If you want to claim his righteous standing before God as your own, and you can do that, but you need to trust Jesus Christ for your salvation. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Ask God to graciously give you a believing heart on the inside, then you will outwardly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ with sincerity and clarity and courage and conviction. The power of his righteous life, death, and resurrection will change you forever from the inside out. It's not an empty promise. very next verse, Romans 10:11, says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Praise God. Do we need to obey this commandment in order to be saved? No. Jesus has already satisfied God's righteous requirement for us through both his obedience and for paying the penalty for our sin. In Christ, our past, present, and future regarding this commandment is secure. However, as believers, we're now called to something much greater than following a rule. Since we're in Christ we're called to walk in newness of life. Therefore, what this commandment reveals about God's moral will for our life and our conduct, it's of the greatest significance in our lives. Look at the third and final point. If we bear the name of Jesus Christ, we must represent God faithfully. We can't have an empty faith. God's plan for us is not a lesson in futility, but a call to faithfulness in representing God. We don't want to be what Jude referred to as waterless clouds, clouds that look like they hold rain, but they actually have no potency. So let's consider a few practical ways to apply this commandment to our new life in Jesus Christ. The first application is a sincere Christian testimony, point A. Turn to Acts 19. Acts 19, page 928. We're going to read a brief story. Seems kind of funny. But then when you think about it, it's not so funny after all. Acts 19. And I'm going to begin with uh, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. You see, the seven men described here didn't have changed lives. They thought they could simply say the words. But when they tried to do something in the, name of the, in the name of Jesus, it had no force, no power, no real meaning. They were unmasked, found out for what they truly were. Because their faith wasn't real. They had no true testimony. So their words rang hollow. Now, there's a big difference between hallowed be thy name and hollow be thy name. When we use God's name angrily to manipulate people or something like that, we rob it of its meaning. When we follow mindless repetition in our prayers, God's name becomes hollow. When we bear the name of Jesus as believers, but we don't walk in newness of life, we disrespect his holiness. We're not hallowing his name. So when you pray before bed or before meals, is God's name in your prayers hallowed or hollow? Or when you're talking about Jesus with your coworkers or your friends or your neighbors, talking about the Lord, is his name hallowed or hollow? What about what, when we're talking to one another about our great God, other believers? Is his name hallowed or Hollow? It's really worth thinking about the story of how God saved you according to what you see in Scripture and being able to tell others about it. Now, please don't be reluctant to write down your testimony because of what I've said. We want you to write it down. But we want it to mean something. We want it to mean that Jesus Christ has really changed your life. That you now represent a work of God's grace for the glory of his name. And for that to be the case, your testimony must line up with what Scripture says about the gospel And it must also line up with the life that you're actually living. Not that you're living it perfectly, like Jesus, but that you're living it faithfully, like a follower of Jesus. And a clear marker of a changed life is that you're done with deceptive speech. You want to put that sin to death. You don't want to hide behind false or misleading words. Instead, you want to speak truthfully, point B, especially toward God and especially with your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is hard to do. But if we call Jesus our Lord, we have the power by his spirit to do it in his name. Turn to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 9. Paul tells believers in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then go down to verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. So quick illustration. Our country has had truth in labeling laws going back to 1966. Before that time, there were no regulations, can you believe this, in place, requiring product manufacturers to pledge to consumers that products were consistent and accurate. Misleading and even deceptive packaging was a problem. So our government decided that our society would be better off if, we could, if people could rely on the labeling. So they adopted laws requiring truthfulness on the outside about what's inside the package. Now, in the same way, the church community is better off when we tell the truth and we don't deceive one another. What's our label? Our label is sinner saved by grace. So we shouldn't be pretending we're perfect people, should we? That's misleading about what's inside of us. Yet we also have the Spirit of God inside of us, teaching us God's Word and helping us to put sin to death. So let's be honest about how that's really going with us. Our life groups should be a place where we dig deep to share what God is truly doing in our hearts. Our men's and women's Bible studies should stimulate honest conversations about putting sin to death in our lives. Our personal interactions with brothers and sisters in Christ should be moments of real honesty and encouragement. Trust God that he's put these people and these relationships into your life for your good. So let's be real with one another. But let's also be sharing about the real changes in our lives, because those are real too, right? Let's encourage one another with the change that we see. Let's move past pretense and testify to the great power of God's name. That means moving to point C that there's still important changes to make in our lives. We're always in the process of change, putting on old behavior, putting off old behaviors, putting them off and putting on new ones. That is stopping old behaviors that are damaging and good for nothing and replacing them with behaviors that build up our brothers and sisters in Christ and give thanks to God. This is right out of the book of Ephesians. And if God has given you a new heart, a heart that's been changed from stone to flesh, why not start with a kind of talk that's coming out of your mouth? Let the change inside of you work its way out of you so that others can see it and give glory to God. Turn to Ephesians 4, page 978, Ephesians 4. Verse 29, Paul says again to believers, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good as for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And then look at verse, or chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. It's changes like this within the community of God's people that tells outsiders that there's power in the name of Jesus Christ. So why doesn't God want us to take his name in vain? Why? It's not because he's listening for buzzwords. He's interested in the content of our lives, including our words. So what does our life communicate? Meaning, what does it say about God and his holy name, his power, his works? what it means to be blessed by him. If we're doing what we do in the name of Jesus Christ, then our lives mean something, and they look like something. We shouldn't be living empty lives in vanity fair, striving for what everyone wants but is not worth having. That would rob God's name of its power. To be in Christ is to bear his name, bear his name. We are called Christian, not in a watered-down sense of that word, but in its truest sense. We're being conformed to the image of God. That's what it means. So the content of our lives should testify to the power of God's Holy Spirit working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This means, as Christians, we live full lives in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake, full of gospel presentation, full of truth, full of encouragement, full of thanksgiving, God's people are not cursed. They're blessed beyond measure. For our Savior, the Israelite, who fulfilled these commandments for us, he said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So let's love God exclusively, rightly, and reverently. And after we pray, let's go from here. And let's honor God's name in all that we say and do. Let's pray. Father, uh, we do revere your name. Your name is untarnished. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for misrepresenting you. If we bear your name and we have disrespected it, Um, We realize that that brings accountability in your sight before your throne, Lord. So we have all failed, and we're so grateful and thankful for our Savior, Jesus, who is your exact representation, who obeyed, and who bore our guilt perfectly. Lord, may we walk in newness of life, and we, we shine your light before men, and give glory and honor to your name, and demonstrate your power and boast in the fact that we know you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.